John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and I am going to read them. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, thank you that as we still ourselves, that we know that you are present with us this evening by the power of your Spirit. And Jesus, would you come and minister to us by your Spirit, just as you ministered to the people at that wedding back then. Come and minister to us. Come and help me as I try and unpack uh, your word. And we pray, Lord God, that you would minister to us deep in our hearts and that you would transform us and transform our lives. Amen. Well, this passage, it happens at a wedding, and this year is undoubtedly the year of HTC weddings. I have lost count of how many there are going to be. I think it's in double figures, uh, but it's actually so exciting to have all these couples uh, who have met uh, here in church uh, who are now going to be getting married this year, some whom are here this evening. Uh, but let's face it, a wedding would not be a wedding without some sort of wedding disaster along the way. Um, at Susanna and my wedding uh, 16 years ago, um, after sort of a few days before the wedding, I managed to uh, make my mother cry uh, over a discussion and debate about what trousers I would wear on the big day, which is a particularly important topic, what trousers I should wear. Um, but on, on the actual day... Um, the big disaster came right at the start. came right at the start of the day because the very first guest to arrive uh, was none other than Susanna's ex-boyfriend. And uh, Susanna's ex-boyfriend at the time, I think, was still very keen on the fact that he thought he should ought to marry her rather than me. Um, and uh, for some reason that escapes me now, all the ushers, they had vanished. I don't know where they were. They may be gone down the pub or something. But there were no ushers around in the church. Uh, the vicar who was going to be marrying us, he hadn't arrived yet. So it was just me and then the ex-boyfriend arrives. And um, yeah, it was awkward. The discussion was very awkward. Uh, but we survived anyway. Now, at, at the wedding in Cana, the service has gone fine, and the disaster comes a bit later in proceedings. It's at the reception, in amongst the excruciating dad dancing and the ushers flirting with the bridesmaids. A social faux pas is happening. The wine is running out. And we all know what happened 
Jesus comes to the rescue, uh, turning several jars of H2O into the finest vintage burgundy. We know what happens. We know the what. But what about the why? Why did this happen? Why did it happen? The last verse of the passage is key. Just take a look at verse 11. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, John uses the word sign lots in his gospel. In fact, the first half of John's gospel, it is often known as the book of signs, because in it, in the first 12 chapters of his gospel, there are seven signs that he talks about. Uh, And the idea is this, he uses the word sign rather than using the word miracle because he's saying that these miracles, whilst they certainly are miracles, actually these miracles, the primary purpose that Jesus has in performing them is not just to sort of display his power, but actually it's rather to point beyond the miracle itself to a deeper reality about Jesus's identity. So verse 11, signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. Now, this turning water into wine, it is the first of these seven signs. And and the question for us tonight is to answer, what does this sign actually reveal to you and me about Jesus' glory? What does it reveal to us about who Jesus is? And I guess particularly, what does it reveal to us about what it means for you and I to have life to the full in Jesus? What do we learn about that from this sign? Well, the first thing's this that life to the full with Jesus is a life of love. It's a life of love. Uh, just imagine for a moment that you were, uh, were thinking of becoming prime minister, and you were going to give your first campaign speech. I should think probably a few MPs are thinking exactly that at the moment. Um, but um, you would give it quite a bit of thought, wouldn't you? You would give it a lot of thought about what you were going to say. Because the first thing that you do, it sets an initial marker as to who you are as to what you're about, as to what your priorities are, what your values are, what your vision is. So I reckon it's quite surprising that Jesus' first sign, his first sign to, to show who he is, to reveal his glory, it's not raising someone from the dead. It's not overcoming a serious societal evil or a serious spiritual evil. Rather, it's sorting out a slightly embarrassing situation at a wedding, a social faux pas. Why on earth did Jesus choose that. Well, a wedding throughout Scripture is symbolic of God's relationship with His people, particularly Christ's love for His bride, the church, us. Uh, And more than that, you'll remember if you were here last week that um, the previous bit of John, at the end of John chapter 1, it's been all about Jacob. You'll remember there's that dream that Jacob has about the ladder going from earth to heaven. Uh, And if you read the whole of the story of Jacob in Genesis… Jacob's whole life is a search for the right wife. Uh, When he's having this dream, he is on his journey searching for who his wife should be. You see, marrying the right wife, enjoying the right wedding, is the story of Jacob's life. And in a sense, as we get to this next bit in John chapter 2, this is all part of Jesus' reminder to us all, whoever we are, Whoever we are, whether we're single or married, gay or straight, divorced, widowed, whoever we are, 
Being part of the right ultimate wedding is the top priority for each one of us. And that wedding is not any wedding to another mere human, but it is a wedding that is available to every single one of us, a wedding between us and Jesus. You see, every time that God chooses an image about himself, it says something about him, of course it does, but actually it also says something about us as well. You know, just think about every bridegroom as he spots his bride coming through the doors and coming down the aisle. Every bridegroom, he is totally bowled over by her. I get the privilege of seeing the bridegroom. I'm standing here in the wedding. So often the bridegroom is blubbing away as the, as the bride comes down the aisle. He is bowled over. He is, he, he is delighted in her. And God loves you like that. God cherishes you. God delights in you like a bridegroom delights in his bride. And that is the first thing that this sign at this wedding in Cana, that it tells us about life to the full with Jesus. It is a life of love, that you're cherished, you're loved, that Jesus delights in you. Here's the second thing. The second thing we see is that life to the full with Jesus is a life of freedom. It's a life of freedom. Now, as we all know, with the advances in technology over the sort of last few years and decades, uh, some things have become redundant. So one of those things with mobile phones is the good old traditional red telephone box. That has become redundant. And because it's become so redundant, yet looks quite fun and nice, all around the country, you'll probably have seen it, people have creatively commandeered these phone boxes for other uses. So here's a common use for it, turning it into a library. You'll see this one. I don't know if you've seen one like that. There's quite a few around where the phone box has been turned into a library. Uh, here are two more. One's an ice cream dispenser. Uh, the other is a color therapy booth. Um, and then my, my personal favorite is this one, the phone box turned into a beach shower. Now, would you look at verse 6? Just have a look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that these six stone water jars, they weren't just any old water jar, but they were the ones used for ceremonial washing. They were the ones used for cleansing, for, for all the rigmarole needed to get purified, be right before a holy God. And Jesus commandeers these water jars. He commandeers what was supposed to be used for cleansing, and he says now they can be used as giant wine dispensers. He's saying they're now redundant, they're now defunct, they're not needed. And so he turns them into something even more entertaining than a beach shower. And again, what does that communicate to you and me? I think above all, it communicates that life to the full with Jesus is a life of freedom. That we are free from all that constant need to be cleansed, to be purified again and again every time we muck up. What the jars used to accomplish, Jesus is saying he will now accomplish. He says a life in him is the means of you and I knowing our sins washed away, knowing cleansing, knowing freedom once and for all. In the 1960s, there were a number of um, trials of key Nazi soldiers from World War II who had committed terrible crimes against humanity in the concentration camps. 
And one man being tried was Adolf Eichmann. And a witness in his trial was a man called Yehiel Deneur. And Yehiel Deneur had seen firsthand the atrocities in the concentration camps committed by Adolf Eichmann. And when in this trial, when Yehiel Deneur in the 1960s, when he saw in the middle of this trial, he saw Eichmann for the first time face to face in the trial. Yehiel Deneur broke down in tears and then he fainted. And there was absolute pandemonium in the court. Uh, the judge is sort of hammering away to try and get order. And you, actually, you can watch all of this on YouTube. It's there on YouTube. Now, wind the clock on 20 years to the 1980s. And in the 1980s, there's a powerful moment uh, on an American TV interview. And Yehiel Deneur is being interviewed. And he's shown this video clip of him collapsing. And he was asked why it happened. What, what was the reason why it happened? Was it the, the painful memories? Was it the hatred? Was it the, the fear? What was it that caused him to collapse, he was asked. And Yehiel nurse said it was none of those things. He said it was as he realized, as he came face to face with Adolf Eichmann, it was as he realized that Eichmann was not a complete psychopathic monster but that actually Eichmann was an ordinary human being like himself. And then he said this. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Now, I pray that none of us will be sinned against like the Jewish people in those concentration camps. Yet all of us, in different ways, hopefully for all of us less than those people in the concentration camps, all of us, we will at times have been victims. All of us will, in different ways. We have all been sinned against, whether it's being bullied once in the playground or something worse. All of us will have been victims at times, sinned against. And yet... As Yehiel Deneur realized, actually, each one of us, we are rebels as well as victims. Every one of us, we are those who have sinned as well as having been sinned against. For, for all of us, there are things that we've done wrong, things that we're ashamed about, things that we regret. But Jesus Christ, he says to us here, whoever we are, we can know freedom. We can know freedom from the consequences of both being a victim and a rebel. Because Jesus washes us clean. We are cleansed of our sin and we are cleansed of where we've been sinned against. We're cleansed of all the pain and the agony and the regret and the shame from both being a victim and a rebel. And the question is, how on earth is that possible? Well, remember what happens in this wedding. Mary, Jesus' mother, turns to her son and she says, son, sort it out. Sort out this situation with the wine. Do something about it. And how does Jesus reply? Verse 4, he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. 
Now, that sounds more insensitive and harsh than it perhaps actually is. Jesus uses the same word, woman, when speaking tenderly to his mum as he dies on the cross. But certainly, verse 4 shows us that Jesus is clearly struggling. He is struggling. Something is burdening Jesus. Something is weighing him down. Why do you involve me, he says to his mum. My hour has not yet come. And when you look through John's gospel, Jesus actually speaks about his hour time and time again. And every single time he is referring to his death. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Until finally, John chapter 17, verse 1. He's praying to his father and he says, Father, the hour has come. And then he goes to the cross. And here at the wedding party, as he stands in the middle of the booze tent, as he listens to his mum, Jesus, his focus seems to be somewhere else. And he's thinking. He's thinking, I can bring freedom. I can bring cleansing. I can do that for everyone here at this wedding. Indeed, every person that will ever walk on planet earth. I can deal with all the guilt and the shame and the pain and the sin. I can do that, but I'm going to have to die to make it possible. You see, the one person who is not a rebel has to become a victim on the cross for you and me. Taking all God's righteous anger at our sin on himself. So that we, you and I, we can be free. Life to the full with Jesus. It's a life of love. It's a life of freedom. And finally, it is a life of joy. It's a life of joy. Pick up, would you, the story at verse 9. Verse 9. Uh, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now, the master of the banquet, really, that's sort of like the, the minister for fun uh, at the wedding. You know, the, he, his responsibility that people had a good time at the wedding. And then Jesus cruises in and shows him really how to throw a real party. Jesus' wine is far, far better. Jesus, if you like, he's saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the true bringer of joy. Now, of course, life in Jesus now is not a life of permanent, joyous circumstances. We live, we know only too well, we live in a world that is marred by sin and by suffering. But this wedding banquet of joy, it points us forward to the final banquet, the, the wedding day between us and Jesus, a day of pure joy. And strikingly, you know, I think John is urging you and me to, to do that, to look forward to the heavenly wedding banquet. Do you remember how, um, how, how John starts his whole gospel? He starts it, John chapter 1, verse 1, with the words, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, he's consciously echoing Genesis 1, verse 1, the first creation account. And he's consciously echoing it because he's, he's thinking, I am writing a second creation account. And so I'm going to mirror Genesis 1. So he says, In the beginning was the word. Here is his new creation count, a new creation as people come to life in Jesus. 
But, you know, if you count the days of this new creation account at the start of John's gospel, actually in chapter 1 of John's gospel, there have been four days. Now look, would you, at, uh, just up at verse 1, start of chapter 2, he says, on the third day. You see, this wedding is on day 7 of this new creation account. This wedding is on the day of completion, the day when God rests, when his creation work is complete. And we're being encouraged, we're being reminded that we are to anticipate this day of creation completion, to marvel and to wonder at this life of eternal joy at the heavenly wedding banquet. Isaiah the prophet describes it best in the Old Testament. Coming up on the screen is Isaiah 25, verse 6. This is what Isaiah says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Now, isn't that an amazing picture? That is why you and I can be a people of joy right now. Whatever the circumstances, we can be a people of joy right now because we will have certain eternal joy later. If we just have that up on the screen again, just look at some of the details. The finest of wines, the shroud destroyed, death swallowed up. Tears wiped away, disgrace removed. It is an incredible picture of pure, eternal joy. One of his books, um, Tim Keller, quotes uh, a guy called Edmund Clowney. And Edmund Clowney says this. He says, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, the sorrow of his death, So that today, you and I, who believe in him, could sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. And my question to each one of us tonight is very, very simple. How does this miracle make you feel? How does it make you feel? In verse 11, it says, when Jesus, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And if you have believed in Jesus, if you've become his disciple, then Jesus says to you, he says, I am your bridegroom. Jesus says that to you. He says, I'm your bridegroom. He says, life to the full in me is a life of love. I delight in you. He says to you, I am your water jar. I am your your means of cleansing. Life to the full in me is a life of freedom, free from shame and guilt and condemnation. And Jesus says to you, he says to you, I am the master of your banquet. I am your minister of fun. Life to the full with me is a life of joy. 
And so, you know, whatever your circumstances are right now, this is what is on offer. If you believe in Jesus, you have life to the full right now and going on into eternity. You can sip on the love. You can sip on the freedom. You can sip on the joy now, even in the midst of this world's sorrows. You can say, I am living a life of love. I am cherished. You can say, I am living a life of freedom. I am cleansed. And you can say, I am living a life of joy. I am content. Shall we stand and let's pray? You know, in this uh, miracle, Jesus may be the, the true bridegroom. He may be the true water jar. He may be the true master of the banquet. But the truth is, you and I, if you like, we are the water that's turned into wine. Just as Jesus transformed the water into wine, so Jesus can be transforming you and me. It says in God's word, it says, go on being filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled with the Spirit. So whether it's for the very first time, whether it's for the thousandth time, let's take a moment now to ask that same Jesus to fill us afresh with his Spirit. So let's be quiet for a moment. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us afresh tonight. Jesus, would you come and do your transforming work in each one of us by the power of your Spirit? Would you do that work in us just as you did it with the water being turned into wine? Transform us, we pray. And just as we stand here in God's presence, just allow him to work in you. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh this evening.